We're going to look at the first 13 verses. Um, You know what? Let's just read these and we'll just take off with where the Lord has led me, all right? Chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 13. You're going to need your Bibles because we're going to cover a lot of books today. Uh, People have told me that they... uh, I should do more Old Testament, so here you go. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate of the same spiritual food, and all drank of the same spiritual drink, drink. for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age, ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Let's pray. Father, we come now to hear from you. Father, may you teach me, may you open my eyes, may the light of your holiness grow in my soul. Father, may it also in these people, these precious saints. Father, may we hear from you, may we hunger for you, may our passion be for you. And Father, may we heed this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you're going to think limits of Christian freedom. You started that in chapter eight and you just really haven't come up with a new title or you're just running out of your creative juices. Uh, No, not actually. Uh, Limits of Christian freedom started in chapter eight and we'll go all the way through uh, to the phrase of verse one. It says, be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. Okay, that's the theme that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. And yet this whole letter, the first Corinthians is dealing with practical problems in the church, personal holiness. I shared with you that uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, that the body of Christ is the fullness of Jesus Christ. And he is the head over it. Do you not understand? I think many of us do not understand that it takes all of us to do that. It is we collectively as we gather together as brothers and sisters eternal now that we literally manifest the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet in dealing with that, we will deal with different levels of spiritual maturity. Okay? One of the problems that you will deal with as, you're, as you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ in the time that He has graced you and will grace you is that Every body of Christ has faced, will face, or is facing. How do we determine what we should do in the areas of life that the Bible doesn't really speak of? The Bible speaks of a lot of things that are right and wrong. Homosexuality and lying lying is an abomination. Both of them. There's a lot of things. Uh, Do not steal. Honor your parents. Um, and we've looked at a lot of this, and, and I just want you to think about it, because as a child of God, I am now free in Christ. Absolutely free. But I am still morally obligated to God's standard. All right? In chapter 9, verse 21, there is also a thing that we need to pay attention. Paul, speaking of reaching to the lost, 
those without the law, as without the law, as though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? They will know you are mine by your love for one another. Okay? How many of us in our day-to-day, the mundane grind, look at every situation, every person, every relationship, every individual situation, attitude, and look at it and the law of Christ? How can Christ's love be manifest in this situation? So if it isn't wrong, we Christians, we have a technical and moral right. How do I make those decisions? Well, two things we've been looking at. Um, that help us in these quote-unquote gray areas, how will it affect others? That was chapter 9. And how will it affect me? How will it affect you in this decision? That's chapter 10. Chapter 9, how will it affect others? Because he set the principle in chapter 8. Chapter 9, how will it affect others? Is illustrated, And he illustrated through his own life. And he literally said, you know what? I am allowed, not only that, in some cases I have been mandated. God says that you pay the preacher. He says, but I have restricted that right because of what I am doing for the Lord. And I am showing an illustration of a right that is due me, technically, and I have forfeited that right, so I may win the more. But the question now that he poses with is, how does it affect you? You who are spiritually mature. You who are stronger in your faith, he said to the church in Rome in chapter 13 of the Roman letter. And here in this text, he uses Israel as a picture to illustrate it. How the misuse of freedom will affect you. How the misuse of freedom can lead to temptation. What I mean by temptation is a test. Okay? In the test, I can have victory or I can have sin. I'm not going to call it failure. It's called sin. All right? And let's be realistic about it, okay? How many of us are tempted and tested every day? Right? All right? And sometimes, you know, the pop quizzes, I did good. I was ready for that one. I studied. Right? Sometimes the pop quiz catches a blind side and you find yourself laying in the ditch, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe you guys don't. I find myself saying, what was that? Right? <laughs> How did I get over here? All right? So why would you want to add tests? That's what Paul is saying. All right? You young people who are in school, would you like to have more tests in school? Ask your mom and dad if they would like to have more tests. And what Paul's saying is that be careful that in this technical freedom you have, you don't bring yourself more pop quizzes. And I, we, we should wake up to this subject. And what I mean we, Castle Rock Baptist Church, needs to wake up to this. This is a very important subject. This is a very practical subject. And we need to take our time going through it. And you guys said, Terry, I've not found the passage. You don't take your time. Uh, well, I may get even slower now. There is a danger here that the Apostle Paul is dealing with, and I believe that we may be susceptible to. Okay, what I mean by we, the body of Christ. Okay? You know what the danger is? Anybody want to guess? How about overconfidence? Have you ever just been overconfident with your theology? I've been in a lot of Bible studies, and you know, I've been doing a lot of things, and God's been using me and this and that and the other. And we become very confident. You want to know whether you're overconfident? It's a very simple test. The easiest quiz you can ever do to find out if you're overconfident. What's your prayer life? When your prayer life starts diminishing, you start saying, No worry, Lord. I can handle this one. 
Okay, if your prayer life is minimal, where's your confidence? Because see, what I have found in America today is that we have a tendency to be a can-do people. Right? I mean, after September 11th, all we needed was a target. Right? We were hurt. We were shattered. We couldn't believe that this has happened. And then the shock kind of wore off. And what did America say? Give me a bullseye. I can fix this. Right? And what did we do? We just blew up a bunch of desert places. But you know what? That's the church. That's the church today. It was in the case of the Corinthians. They were saying, hey, you know what? We're saved. I mean, our church planner, you know who our church planner was? Paul. We've been baptized. We've been instructed by the best. We are mature. We are lacking in nothing. And Paul yourself, you even said it in your letter, we are lacking and we come behind in no gift. We've seen a lot of things happen in our lives. We've seen a lot of lives change. We've seen freedom that we never dreamed of. We've been set free from sin. We are so mature now. We have had so many Bible studies and so many precept studies and so many prayer meetings and so many studies of Bible and understanding. It would be almost impossible for us to get trapped in anything. So, Paul, what's the concern? Well, in that same mentality, I can look in this body just today and say there would be weaker saying some of them things that you feel you're free to do and won't be tempted. I can't do that. And I'm not sure how you can. Paul already stated, you know what? Chapter 8, this stuff that's offered to idols... It's nothing. An idol is nothing. It is absolutely nothing. You know, um, the more mature Christian in Corinth could go to an event, to a celebration, to a wedding, to a festival, and could have a meal. He could eat the meat that had been offered up to some pagan god. He could fellowship with old friends. He could talk. He could have a little social time. And he completely ignored the idolatry that's going on around him. But those who were just saved, if they were to go, they would find themselves attached to the former in such a way of life that it becomes a stumbling block, he said. It's a stumbling block. The word in the Greek is scandalon, and it's a trigger. It's the trigger on a trap. Okay? I mean, you can go into the trap, just don't mess with the trigger. A mature Christian knows that I can go into the trap. I just don't play with the trigger. A weak Christian says, I can't go nowhere near that trap. But Paul is saying, if you're truly a smart Christian, a mature Christian, you're stronger in your faith, you won't even wander around that trap. There can be a hindrance in the body of Christ, older Christians and younger Christians. Some will look at a stronger Christian and say, how can you be a part of that? Stronger says, I ignore the idolatry. Why? It's where the Baptists were born. I'm there for the food. The weaker Christian says, I can't separate the two. That meat was offered to an idol. So Paul in 9 has said, you better consider the weaker brother. So we've already looked at it. How is it going to affect other? Now chapter 10 starts. How will it affect you? Some of you in this room will say that I am fairly strong in my faith. I have been through a lot. I have weathered a lot. I have tested a lot. I've ended up in the proverbial ditch a lot and I've Through God's grace and forgiveness, I've come back out of it. And I I was thinking as I was looking at this text in 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter to this young man that he had literally poured himself into, and he has to tell Timothy, please stand in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How will it affect you? How will this newfound freedom affect you? How 
Can you handle it? Better yet, can you? Can you handle it? Can you live on the edge of freedom without falling? I think that we get a summary, or not a, a summary. I, I want There's something wrong here in this text that I want you to pay attention to. If I was the editor, there wouldn't be a chapter 9 or a chapter 10. Chapter 8 would have just kept running. All right? Why do I say that? Paul in chapter 9, verse 27 says, I discipline my body to make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Okay, so Paul says there's a possibility to be used supernaturally by God, to be a servant of the Most High God, completely committed to Him, to forsake everything that there is, literally to be a preacher of the gospel and the anointing power of the Holy Spirit, to be used beyond your wildest dreams or expectations, and yet in the exercising of your freedom, end up disqualified for service. Now listen, if my brother Paul is going to share that warning with me, I got both ears open and I'm begging the Holy Spirit to make me pay attention. I can be active, but if I don't discipline myself, if I don't bring my body into subjection under what I'm doing, I could be disqualified. That's what Paul is saying. And you know what? Look around you, brothers and sisters. How many have been? Serving Christ, using their freedom, they abuse it, and they render themselves useless. Paul is exercising. Paul is saying, exercise your freedom. Be careful. That's why I gave this one the subtitle, It's a Warning. It's a Warning. See, be warned that your freedom doesn't exercise you because you can't fall into sin. Confident Corinthians, you can't run your freedom all the way to its limits without paying attention to the danger of falling into sin yourself. I would say this, Castle Rock Baptist Church, you cannot run your freedom to its limits without the danger of falling into sin. Go to a festival. Go for the food. Go to a wedding. Go for the food, for the fellowship. You go possibly to reach the lost. You go because you have friends there you haven't seen in years. They may be lost, they may not be. You know, we're in that time of the year when you who are working out in offices and all the rest of it are preparing to have your quote-unquote church or your office party. Is there anything going wrong with going to office party? Is it against the word of God as a child of God to go to the office party? No. Is there a danger in going to the office party? Not mine and Stephanie's. <laughs> we, we scheduled ours when we get to heaven. Uh, so we should be fine when we get there. But there's a possibility. You know, the Corinthians can say, I'm not going to worship false gods. You know what? I'm not even going there to partake or even pay attention to the orgies that would come out of some of this. I'm just ignoring it. And Paul says to that person, to that male or to that female, when you put yourself in these situations, do you really ignore it? That's the question. That's what he's dealing with here. And there is a possibility that you can be exposed to enough. You can be used of God enough. You can see the mercies of God. You've been used to reach the lost. You can literally see where your life has impacted others and you've grown them and they've become stronger. Where God has used you beyond anything you could ever dream of and that you become overconfident. That you are able to flirt with that line. Can you really make it? I see this today in the church. We have stepped into a, a very dangerous place. I had a meeting this week with our denomination and a number of the pastors. And one of the things I heard was this. There's a confidence that exists. How many in this body right to this day 
have been in Bible studies and different studies and different times and different worship services, have been part of this fellowship for a long time, and have literally are trying to take all the information that you have gleaned and to sanctify yourself, to make yourself more holy. Guess what? That's pretty confident. Because if you literally think that you can take and study the scripture deep enough and hard enough and strong enough that you can literally make yourself holy, then what you're saying is, is that Jesus Christ, you didn't really need to die for me. I just needed the information. That's tough. We have an overconfidence at times, I believe, in the gray areas. That I can stand in certain areas. Confidence of their strength. Confidence of the continuation of what Christ has done in our lives. It's a dangerous place. You can summarize this text, this first 13 verses with verse 12. Therefore, okay, we always know therefore is because of what has been said. It refers back. What has been said, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Okay, because he starts out the text with what? I do not want you to be unaware. He's saying, I want you to remember this. I want this plugged in in the format front and center of your thinking and your attitude and your action and your character. I don't want this one to drift off as, oh, I forgot. I want you to pay attention to this, Paul is saying. He's telling you and I, even from heaven this day, pay attention. Because in verse 12, he says, if you think you can stand everything and you're all right because you're girded and you're tested and you're proven and your faith is strong, he says, you're in a bad place. You're in a bad place. Christians, we mature in our faith. Did you know that? You don't mature in your theology, though part of your faith will be growing in theology is understanding who God is and what God's up to. You will not grow in that. But the truth of the matter is, I know some professors right now who I will not spend eternity with who know more Bible than I'll ever know. They have theology. They have very little faith. But in the same time, we need to be careful that we who believe our faith is strong, that we do not use this freedom to bring on unexpected tests. God is very, very, very concerned about this. I want you to understand it. If you don't get anything out of this message, understand that God is extremely concerned about overconfidence. All right. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction. Okay. It's leading out there. I'm on it. I'm out front for Jesus. And he says that it will lead you to destruction and a proud spirit before the fall. Okay. Also in the book of wisdom, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23, a man's pride shall bring him low. Pride, confidence. How does God deal with it? Very simply. Let's take an adventure. All right? I'm going to test you all now. I'm going to see your spiritual maturity. Everyone needs a Bible. And we're going to pursue Scripture. All right? And we're going to start off in Esther. Esther. That would be Old Testament. It would be way left. Esther chapter 6, it would be just before the book of Jobs. Job, I mean. Job. Okay? In the middle of your Bible is the Psalms. Alright? To the left is Job, and to the left is Esther. Esther chapter 6. Let me tell you about Esther. Very beautiful Jewish woman. In March, I was in Israel and had the opportunity to be there during the time of Purim, that's called, which is a celebration of the book of Esther. And it's really comical, actually. Every time Haman's name is mentioned, they would read Scripture, the book of Esther, all over the place. Anytime they would say the name Haman, and I'll deal with Haman in a minute, everybody goes, la, 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 la. They make all kinds of noise. La, 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 la. Why? His name is to be blotted out from the memory of Israel. 
So anytime someone says, Haman, and you're not allowed to, so we, no one would ever hear the name, okay? <laughs> All right, so that, that, I thought it was kind of comical, so it kind of led me over there. <laughs> Esther was a Jewish woman. It sounds like my sermons. La, 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 we're not listening. Um, Jewish woman who lived in a Persian kingdom. Uh, for those of you who are struggling with geography, Persia would be Iran that you know today. Okay, and if you don't know where that's at, uh, check out the Iraqi news. You'll figure it out. Um, the king of Persia one night got uh, was having a little uh, party and kind of got a what they call a drunk on. And, and during this party, he said, bring me my wife. And it was this big, huge party. And he had a very beautiful wife. And he wanted everyone to see how beautiful she was. And he was going to display this beautiful woman who was his wife. And that's a good possibility in the Persian culture. He would have her undress to show his people, his friends, what he possesses. So they sent for her and she said... No, I'm not going to be put on display and you ain't going to make me. Okay. The wise men of this Persian king, which would be like his cabinet members, they uh, got a hold of the king and said, uh, we're in trouble. Um, Because your wife will not come. um, It ain't going to be long that every woman in the kingdom won't come when her husband wants her to, wants them to. And, um, you know, everybody wants all the women want to be like the queen. So they're all going to be like the queen. Uh, We're going to to do something about this. So they concluded out with the queen. So they decided they needed to get a new queen. And he wanted, of course, he's being the king of Persia. He wanted a good looker. And he went and started searching the kingdom for a looker. And he... uh, Uh, received a a message from a guy named Mordecai, which happened to be a Jew. And he said, have I got one for you? This and here be a dandy. Okay, and her name is Esther. All right, and so he married Esther. Now, here's the problem. This is a Persian king, and he just married a Jew, which a lot of the Persians kind of got ticked off. I mean, if he was a Persian woman, single, and wanted to be in royalty, and they found out that they picked a Jew, how would you take it? Okay, but there was also an underlying movement of anti-Semitic movement. And it was focused by a guy named Haman. And Haman said, we need to get rid of the Jews. Okay, And Haman was so sure that he needed to get rid of these Jews that he built a gallows in his courtyard of his house. And he was just going to try to help figure it out. So he set his sights on the Jews. And then he wanted to be specific about one because there was sort of one who was like the wiser of the Jews. His name was Mordecai. Ta-da! Mordecai is the one who just got the king his new wife. But he said, you know what? If I kind of get the leadership out of the way, I can deal with this thing. So he had a plan. And, and he wanted to get this thing done. But here's what Mordecai wasn't paying attention to. The king thought Mordecai is kind of cool. Got him this woman. Seems like he's a pretty smart guy. Saved him in a couple other things. And he says, uh, I need to honor this Mordecai. Verse 3, chapter 6. And the king said, what honor and dignity has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? And then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing's been done for him. Verse 4, so the king said, who's out in the court? So he's trying to get something figured out here, and there's a knock at the door. All right, who's out in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. See, now, Haman's got a plan, and he's ahead of the plan, ain't he? He's got to figure, I got the gallows ready. All right. The king's servant says, behold, it's Haman standing in the outer court. And the king says, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what is to be done with this man? Whom? All right. Now he's, he's got Haman comes in and he's wanting some counsel. Okay. It'd be like you got asked into the president's office and he says, I need to ask you some advice. What is to be done with the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me. You know what you call that? Confidence. 
Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring the robe which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, lead him on horseback through the whole city square, and proclaim to him, Thus it shall be done to the man who the king desires the honor. Verse 11, you know what the king says? Great idea! He says, that's a good idea. I like that. Alright? So what does he do? Haman, go give my stuff to Mordecai and walk him through town. Okay? Haman did that. But in chapter 7, verse 10... When the king found out what Haman's plan was, it says they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. Okay? Confidence! I know what's going on. Cruise on over. Remember I told you that the Psalms is the center of your Bible? Okay, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon are called the wisdom books. Right after that is my dear friend, Isaiah. And I'd like to go to Isaiah chapter 37. Isaiah 37. This is when King Hezekiah was charged, uh, ruler of Israel. And the Assyrians were literally taking over the world. And the king of Assyria was outside of Jerusalem. And in verse 37, or chapter 37, verse 10, Thus say to King Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given over to the hand of the king of Assyria. Okay? That's pretty bossy. That's a little confident. And let's be realistic. Everybody that the Assyrians had battled against, they had obliterated. They had come to Jerusalem and they decided they're going to take Jerusalem. And he says, send a note to the king of Judah and Jerusalem, Hezekiah, and tell him, don't be overconfident in what your God's doing. How do you know your God hasn't given you over to me? Look what he says. Behold, verse 11, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my fathers have destroyed deliver them? These people are all religious. They all served gods. Gozan, Haran, Rezifa, the sons of Eden, who were in Telsar, the, kings, the king of Hamath, the king of Erath, the king of the city of Sepharim, and of Hina, of Ah. You know what he's saying? All the rest of them put their confidence in their gods too. Alright? Look at verse 15. What's Hezekiah's response? He had a prayer meeting. He had a prayer meeting. Okay? Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherim. You are the God. You alone are all kingdoms you've made to heaven and earth incline your ear O Lord here open your eyes okay he sought the face of God not the hand of God the face of God what happened verse 33 therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria he will not come into this city he will not shoot an arrow there he will not come there, come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. You know what he's saying? You ain't even going to get close to the wall. Okay? By the way that he came, by that same he will return. Alright? He will not come to the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David. All right, verse 36. 
the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men arose early in the morning, behold, these were dead. <laughs> I love the way that's stated. It just tickles me. I'm sorry. It's just like he struck them dead and they woke up and behold, they were still dead. <laughs> okay, I mean, one angel, 185,000. And what happened? Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned to home where he lived in Nineveh. <laughs> I'm out of here. Okay, you know what happened to him? He decided he'd go worship in chapter in verse 38, and his two sons killed him. Got it? Sennacherib was confident. Cruise on over. A couple of more books. You got Isaiah, you got Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you have our dear friend Daniel. Chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Okay? We all know this guy. Our dear friend Nebi. Okay? Some would pronounce it Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? King of Babylon. See, see what I just showed you? The Persians are gone. The Babylonians are gone. The Assyrians are gone. We see that the Egyptians are gone before long. Look what he says here. This all happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he is walking on the roof. Basically, King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom flourished. Okay, I always thought about this when Saddam used to say that he was Nebuchadnezzar II. I kept thinking about this text. Twelve months later, he was walking on the royal palace in Babylon, and the king reflected. You know what? That's the, that's the New American Standard. That's sort of like... Let me brag to myself. That's what reflecting is. Okay? And he said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself built as a royal residency by my power and for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was on the king's mouth, a voice came out of heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared sovereignty has been removed from you. (laughs) Whoa. That's pretty quick. Okay? And you will be driven away from mankind, and a dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize the Most High as the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it upon whoever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and, became, and began eating grass like a cattle. His body was drenched with dew from heaven, and his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar says, look at what I've done. And God said, excuse me? Okay. Um, Into that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, arose. And I want you to watch this because this is amazing because this is a pagan king. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? That's a pagan king saying those. All right? Well, listen, you just gave us three illustrations of pagans that were prideful. So, what are you saying? All right, I'll deal with some of the descendants. Here's your test. Obadiah. Who can find Obadiah? Did you know that the index of your Bible is divinely inspired also? You can read it. Obadiah, chapter... One. You know why? There is no chapter two. My kind of book. All right. Obadiah is prophesying against Edom. Okay. This would be the lineage of Esau. This is the southeast part of Israel. Uh, It's a cross. It'd be on the east side of the Dead Sea. Uh, You all know where Edom was located. Every person in this room knows where Edom is. And the capital of the Edomites was every one of you in this room. How many of you here seen uh, uh, the Last Crusade, the Indiana Jones movie? The little place that they went into is called Petra, and that was the king. That was the capital city of Edom. 
All right? Um, it's a really cool place. You have to go through a canyon to get to this city. Uh, and at two places in this canyon to get to it, you can only go single file. Okay, one person at a time. Now, you can do it on horseback, but one person at a time. All right? Now, think about that for a second. Is that easy to defend or what? You could have 185,000 troops, and they're still only going to go one through at a time. I was thinking about this place because you can go into Petra now, and you ride a horse to get in there. And I was thinking, honey, you've always wanted to ride a horse. Let's make a deal. Okay? Anyway, the Lord's hand is against, just for your information, if I'm right in my genealogies, Yasser Arafat is an Edomite. Oh, was an Edomite. What you know as the Palestinians or Edomians. All right? Verse 3. This is what the Lord says through Obadiah considering the Edomites. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You live in the clefts of the rock and a loftiness of your dwelling place who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you are set, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Guess what? That place is now ruled and occupied by pigeons. All right? So the argument that would come up now would say, hey, that's Old Testament. Okay, go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. Matthew 26. Okay? If you think you're spiritually mature today, and I brought it to your attention, I said, if you think you're spiritually mature, and you stand, you believe that you got it figured out, base it on your prayer life. And I want to show you something here in this text, okay? This is just partaking of the Lord's table. We just celebrated that. Verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out from the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Now, Jesus just quoted Zechariah. And if these guys were paying attention, you would have to say, you know what? If he's quoting an Old Testament prophet, the odds are what the Old Testament prophet said are true. But after I'm raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Okay? Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I... Now watch what Peter says. Now look at this, verse 35. This will speak to you. Peter says to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And of course, all the disciples said the same thing too. Ask yourself right now, if Jesus Christ says, if someone were to come in and say, die or deny Christ, everyone in this room right now would do what? Okay, I know up until this point I had a perfect answer for it, but now I'm thinking about it. Alright? Listen, it is easy for us to sit here in this comfortable room and say, I would never deny Christ. What were they doing? They were standing right there beside him. They had seen him walk on water. They had seen him raise the dead. They had seen him stop storms. What would you, how confident would you be? I mean, Peter got up there ready to fight the whole Roman army. One at a time. Why? If they kill me, he'll raise me from the dead. Right? I want to show you what happens. They went to Gethsemane, a place called Gethsemane, verse 36. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. And he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and what? Keep watch with me. Stay awake. Pay attention. Pray with me. We're having one of the most serious prayer meetings of the existence of humanity. I need your attention. Hello, hello, hello. He went a little bit beyond them. He fell on his face and he prayed saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, 
Not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them. What? Sleeping. Said to Peter, So, you could not keep watch with me for one hour? See what I just said? If a gunman come in here today and say, I will shoot you unless you deny Christ, we would all say, yes! How do you do with your prayer meeting? Let me tell you something. We can say, well, I pray in my closet. That there is corporate prayer. He's saying, pray with me. Come now, pray with me. Keep watch now, pray with me. He does it two other times. You know what happens when he comes back two other times? They're asleep. They're asleep. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you have been already been warned in this church? This body today who has gathered together. How many times has God's word warned you that this can happen and yet you say, I can handle it. I've been warned. Well, Terry, that's great. Great illustration. I love it. I appreciate it. But let's be realistic. Theologically speaking, this is before Pentecost. These men do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are more than conquerors. We are being conformed into the image of Christ. And so, come on. Great. No worries. Revelations chapter 3. This was written to a church who is indwelled with the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. Okay? Here's a cool church. Amazing church. Verse 17. Because you say I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. To a church, the Lord of hosts says, you believe you have it all. You believe that you're wealthy. You believe that you can do more for my kingdom than anything, any existing entity on the planet earth. And you don't even know that you're broke. You don't know that you're blind. You don't know that you're standing but naked in front of humanity. You don't understand that. Why? Because you are so confident. Confident. Listen, the church in Laodicea received letters from Paul. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Colossae. It says, when you get done reading this, give it to the church in Laodicea. They have one. Make sure you read theirs. You've arrived. You're there. How many in this room this day believe that? How many this day says, you know what? I got saved. I've been baptized. You know, I've been in church on and off. I know I don't attend church a lot because you know what? It's all right. I can handle it. How many of you could live a seven-day week and eat one day, one meal? If the only time you ever open your Bible is an hour on Sunday, how well are you doing? If you really think you're spiritually mature this day, how's your prayer life? When the pastor calls for prayer, how many show? When you feel led to pray, how many times do you tell him, wait? Or how many times do you throw up a, hope that one sticks? That's spiritual maturity. You believe that you've arrived, you have a confidence in yourself, and the Apostle Paul is warning us this very day, be careful. Why? I just gave you how many? I can go more. But God will deal with overconfidence. He doesn't care if you're lost. He don't care if you're an authority. He don't care if you're a king. He don't care if you're dwelt with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't care if you've got a church that is literally turning the world upside down. The day that you say, don't worry, Lord, I can handle this one. You just stepped into a place. Paul's telling you and I, when you think you can stand, you are at that very point, the closest to falling that you can ever be. That is what we will deal with in 1 Corinthians 10. 
Let us pray. Father, I give you the praise for your word. Uh, Father, you never cease to amaze me. And Lord, I just pray that we who hear this today cherish it. Father, I pray that it becomes the fervor of our heart to pray to you. A, a passion to be overwhelmed and begging you and speaking to you and, and laying petition and supplication. Father, coming to you with grateful hearts. Father, that we would, as a body of believers, be united more and more through the intimacy of prayer. And yet, Father, no test has overcome us that is not common. And yet, Father, in your faithfulness, you have provided a way out for every test. Thank you. Lord, may we cherish that. May we hold firm to that. Father, may our hearts be lifted. But Father, may our hearts be guarded. Father, let us who are free in Christ heed the warning and yet cherish the freedom. Father, let us walk in the law of Christ. Let us love for one another. Let us be devoted to one another. Father, let us draw to one another. To you and you alone, my Lord, my Savior. Father, may we just only fall more in love with you. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.